word of the Lord. Crusaders. I suspect that 
not as true today. What is then a, a crusade? The broadest definition is it's a vigorous, aggressive movement for the defense and advancement of a cause. The title of my sermon today is Crusading Christianity. And I'm basically only going to make one point, just make it in several different ways. And that is, our faith, our Christian faith, is a crusading faith. And if it is not crusading, properly understood, it is not Christian. In the last verse that the pastor read, Paul, for the end of his life, and these are some of his last recorded words, says, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. He's using three metaphors there to describe his Christian life. I fought a good fight. He's comparing his Christian life to a battle. I finished my course. He's comparing it to a, a race. I have kept the faith. He's comparing it to a stewardship, something that is handed to him, and that he has preserved and maintained. I'm going to simply stress the first one of those metaphors today. I have fought a good fight. When we hear that expression, crusading Christianity, perhaps at first it sounds a little counterintuitive. After all, doesn't the Bible stress our need to seek peace? Unity? It does. Thinking of that text that perhaps more than any of the Bible on that topic is more, at least more beautiful. How good it is for brethren to dwell together in unity, we read in Psalm 133 1. And those of you that have read the scripture, what is in that metaphor that is used? It is like the what? Anybody know?
But the Bible also and equally expects us to fight the good fight of faith. So I want to make about three points concerning that today. You might want to write them down or remember them as I talk about crusading Christianity. First, our faith is built on a crusade. The storyline of the Bible is, beginning with what we discussed in Sunday school, creation, and then fall and redemption. If somebody were to come up to you and ask you, what's the big picture of the Bible, the big picture of the Christian faith? And you have to give it to me in three words. Well, you might say, Lord Jesus Christ, and that would be incorrect. But a broader and fuller answer would be creation, fall, redemption. That's kind of the worldview of the Bible. God created the world. It was very good. It was the temptation of Satan, man's sin. He wrote God's law, and he wrote God's heart. And because God is a just God, this sin demanded judgment, specifically death, that God had promised. Because God is not just a loving God, he is because he is a loving God, a just God. You see, you really can't have true love without justice, or standards of right and wrong. A love without standards is not really love. But we come to Genesis 3.15, and if you here have read the first promise from God on how he would meet his own terms of justice. Some people call it in Latin, a proto-evangelium, the first message of the gospel. That the woman's seed, and we know that from, I believe, the New Testament, particularly Revelation 12, the woman's seed, the corporate seed means there, Jesus Christ and his people would crush the head of the serpent's seed. Serpent seed, Satan, the anti-lords, and all of Satan's people. Now notice I use that word crush. Now some of the translations say bruise, and that's not wrong. But the Hebrew word is shuf, and it really does mean to break to crush, to overwhelm. It's a very strong word. It's as though literally we, we see a poisonous snake and we hope have a heavy boot on. And we, we, we take our boot and we just crush the head of that serpent before it has a chance to strike us or That's kind of the metaphor that is used there. And that's how God would defeat Satan. Now notice he would not defeat Satan by wooing him tenderly. Satan, I'm going to silently and secretly take you away from the world. That's not the language that is used there or in the rest of the Bible. There is an element of violence, metaphorical, I don't mean physical violence, but metaphorical violence, crushing the head of the serpent. 
Jesus redeems us by crushing Satan and his hosts. I would say boldly then, redemption is God's great crusade. Redemption is God's great crusade. The very foundation of our faith is this crusade. And that's what God has been doing in the world for the last six, seven, eight thousand years. Even before Calvary, that was the highest point of the age. He has been working incrementally to crush the head of the serpent and work of sin and evil in the world. This is earth we live on. This is the battlefield of that crusade. What we talk about in Sunday school, the things your pastor teaches you and all of that. All of that is a part of a great battle. We are a part of a great cosmic conflict. People say, why is there just so much disturbing evil in the world? The terrible things that happened in London yesterday and so many others, perhaps not so graphic, but because we're in the middle of a conflict that's part of it in Genesis 3. That's why. After this fall, this crusade became the great theme of the Bible. The only places you don't see this crusade in the Bible are at the very beginning, before the entrance of sin, and at the very end, when what? The rest of it, the people again, is God installed the cherubim with the fiery sword to prevent humans from re-entering the garden. I need to of life. Think about that. A fiery, a cherubim with a fiery sword. Hmm. Pretty crusade. He was protected. And then Satan strikes back in Genesis 4. The ungodly son Cain, of course, murdered the godly son Abel. And in Genesis 6, the flood, the ungodly giant, the, the Nephilim, are highly the offspring of false gods or demons overwhelming the earth with depravity. And God calls one righteous man, his family, but Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Noah was God's crusader. The New Testament calls him a preacher or herald of righteousness. Which tells us that sometimes it might be very lonely being a crusader, standing for God. It might be. I can't promise you there will always be all sorts of people, majority of people behind you helping you stand for the Lord. That I can't make a promise. And God does. But you stand with you. And then from Genesis 12 onwards, the Old Testament takes down Abraham and the Jews, called to expel the seed of Satan. From Canaan. They were God's holy crusaders. And then, of course, comes about 2,000 years ago, God's chief central crusader. Who is that? Jesus Christ. He was born into a culture dominated by two great Jewish powers the Roman Empire and apostate, apostate Jewish 
religion, and those two colluded, joined together, conspired to crucify the Lord. But in his death and resurrection, the Bible teaches, he crushed Satan, crushed him. Definitively. Though Satan is still at work, he has been crushed. We could say Satan has been mortally wounded. And that's the picture we even get in the book of Revelation, for example. He's very angry because he's been dealt this mortal wound. And then in Matthew 16, 18, of course, Jesus promises that the gates of Hades or death, the gates of hell, won't vanquish his church. You see the crusading language there? You see it? Now there's a little metaphorical twist there. The gates of hell won't prevail against the ecclesia of the church. But if you think about it, do gates go out fighting? Do gates all get together and say, we're going to go fight somebody? Gates are stationary. So the picture there is not of the little church sort of huddled up. Saying, we need to see if we can get to heaven soon. The big bad devil is out there. We're a little afraid. So we're just going just to be the holy huddle. And when Satan comes to attack, we erect us a mighty gate. He won't be able to get to us. Bad devil. We'll be saved in here. That's, that's not the picture they give us. The picture basically is that the people of God, as God's crusaders, are storming the gates of hell. And when they storm the gates, the gates of hell, eventually there will be a great collapse. The great collapse. And those gates won't prevail against this massive Christian onslaught. For too long, the church has been on the defensive. That has changed. And then just a little more in the book of Matthew, we read what has been called the Great Commission. Now that's a crusading manifesto if there ever was one. <laughs> Great Commission. Go out and disciple the nations. That's the language there. That's not the Bring them under the authority of the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where this cosmic conflict reached its fevered pitch, right there with this great battle here involved in. And we read in Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, that Satan is angry because he knows he has only a short time. After the cross, Satan knew that in resurrection. I guess Satan was thinking, okay, God means business here. If I'm going to try to disrupt his kingdom, I had better get at it. And that's what he has been doing for 2,000 years. This conflict, this crusade, has been the course of human history for the last 2,000 years. I mean, with everything from apostates in the church, false teaching in the church, Christianity today is filled with false teaching. And I don't say that because I'm negative about the church as an institution. It's one of God's institutions. But in general, though there are exceptions like this one, the churches in the United States are not in great shape in particular. Largely because of false teaching. And then the 
true crusade against Islam and ISIS. You know that Islam is a false religion, and it leads to bad consequences. Not only murders in London, but other less visible but bad consequences in life. And then the crusade against the, the secular Marxists in our culture, the sexual revolution, same-sex marriage, abortion, pornography. We were talking at Sunday school about commodification, looking at the human body as a sort of just a commodity. God imposed standards of reality. Godless political leaders, godless political leaders, the lust for power for its own sake. The churches and Christians should be crusading against this. These are enemies we should fight. And Paul says in Ephesians 6, it's not so much individuals. We're not really fighting against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. That's the language that Paul uses in one way or another and other biblical writers do. It's basically speaking of satanic, devilish angels, as it were, or emissaries that stand behind these evil acts of evil people. And literally, the fact that you can't see them doesn't mean anything. You can't see God, but he's real. These emissaries, are, they're at work in Washington, D.C. right now. They're at work in some churches right now. This is the crusade that we're involved in. Second point. Avoiding crusades invites the triumph of evil. Avoiding crusades invites the triumph of evil. It's remarkable how many Christians want to avoid this battle. And their attitude seems to be, well, if I leave Satan alone, maybe he'll leave me alone. But he won't. Peter describes him as a roaring lion prowling around, attempting to devour someone. I don't want to frighten you unduly this morning, but I do want to tell you that Satan is coming for you and coming for me. He's coming for our family. He's coming for our church. He's coming for our nation. Understand that Satan's vested interest is, is, is in overturning God's good created order. He has a vested interest in that. Satan exists within himself for that purpose. To defy, he knows he can't defeat God, but to defy God. To exist human, created in God's image for his purposes. The goal of the cross and the resurrection, my friends, is eventually to obliterate evil. And I'd like you to think about that. It isn't simply to take us to heaven when we die. Well, thank God for that. The goal of the cross and resurrection is to reverse and undo what happened in the Garden of Eden and all of his evil. So redemption is a very big thing. 
It's a comprehensive thing. Therefore, conflict is a part of life in the sinful world. You say, Andrew, couldn't we just sort of get rid of the conflict? Yes, when we get rid of sin, we'll get rid of the conflict. That's where the conflict comes. Now, because of this, there can be no detente with evil. Those of you that sort of a Cold War word in monitor, what does detente basically mean translate? Peaceful coexistence. The Soviet Union, the U.S. said, particularly the Soviet Union, well, I guess we can peacefully coexist with America. Well, apparently it didn't happen because it's no longer in the Soviet Union. One thing is certain, there can be no peaceful coexistence with evil. Unfortunately, we live in a time of what I'd like to call Christian multiculturalism. <clears throat> I know that sounds self-contradictory, <clears throat> and it is, but nonetheless, it is a real phenomenon. <clears throat> The attitude is sort of, I don't mind how anybody else lives as long as they leave me alone. So maybe how many Christians think this way? Let me give you some quick examples. I know of wives <clears throat> whose husbands live in serial, unrepentant adultery as their children observe and the wives sort of quietly bear this as though, and oh my wives, this is the cross that I'm called to bear. No, I'm sorry, that's wrong. A godly woman in that case should have, ideally, elders in her church that will stand with her and help her. She must stand up and say, no, I'm not going to stand for this. This is wrong. I'm going to crusade against this for the sake of my children, for the sake of the truth. I know of fathers who have teenagers in their own house that fornicate and fornicate and fornicate. I'm repentant, say nothing. I'm not talking about those who fall into sin and repent. I mean those serially, unrepentantly committing sin and you know, I don't want to turn them off. I don't want to make waves. That's a detente and that's really a denial of true Christianity. Church leaders, I know. Again, one right now. Church in California. You might know it would be a church in California. Who refuse to confront church members that are planning abortion. So that's not really, that's not really our place. That's a private choice. If you really think, it's a private choice to murder your baby. It's not our place to deal with. Friends, we are not called to peacefully coexist with evil. We are called to fight and, by God's grace, eventually abolish evil by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't want to fight that battle, I don't care how young or how old you are belonging to Jesus Christ, you're in the wrong place. You enlisted in the wrong army. Another vital point 
really was impressed on me in reading the commentary of the great Protestant reformer John Calvin. Whether you agree with him on everything or not, I don't on everything, but he was commenting on Ephesians 5, verse 11, which says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. And he essentially was teaching this. Avoiding evil is not sufficient. Now think about this for a minute. Our view often is, you know what, I'm going to keep myself unspotted from the world, James says, and that's a good thing. I'm going to protect myself from this evil. I'm not going to live a life of evil, and if I sin, I will confess my sin and get up and move on, and therefore I have fulfilled my duty to live a holy life before God. And Calvin says, no, you haven't. That's necessary, not sufficient. Because the second part of that verse says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but the second part, but rather expose and reprove them. And because of our sinful uh, piety, which really is cowardice, a lot of what passes off today as piety is really cowardice. It really is. In my own life, perhaps in your life. We have not obeyed God unless we have exposed evil when it crosses our path. This doesn't mean we have to go across the world to expose every evil. It means when evil comes into our path, those whose lives are around us, and it's unrepentant, palpable, obvious evil. Our job isn't just to remain pure, but to say, that's wrong. That is wrong. Somebody says, well, Andrew, that might turn people off. Well, we have to be faithful to God. Yes, we're to treat people charitably. We're not to unnecessarily offend people. We're not to be gruff and unkind, but we must obey the Word of God. It is for this reason that we need a revival of the preaching of the law of God. Our forefathers understood this much more than many of us today. God's law exposes sin and brings conviction of sin. And that puts people in a position to seek the grace of God. Would you want to know, in my view, why we see so few deep conversions today? I mean people that are just enslaved to narcotics and drugs and alcohol and sexual perversions and things like that. Well, for that matter, high tax and consumerism, greed, and so on. Why do, so, why do we not see more people who are just radically changed as a result of the preaching of the gospel? I'm sure there are many One of them is we have an impoverished preaching of the law of God today. People aren't convicted because of their sin today. They think, I'm okay. But one of the main messages of the Word of God is in our natural state, we're not okay. We're not okay. We're not fine. The law of God turns that very 
white, hot, holy spotlight of God's holiness on sin, mine and yours. And that causes us, by the operation of the Spirit, to turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. People today are not convicted of sin because they don't know God's holy standards, and they don't know God's holy standards because the church doesn't preach them. Imagine going to a doctor and he sees on the x-rays that you have some rapacious disease, cancer, and his attitude is, if I mention that to this patient whom I've known for 20 years, they're going to be really depressed. They're going to be saddened and they're going to begin grieving. So I'm just going to tell them everything looks fine. Would you consider that a good doctor? No. Well, the Church of Jesus Christ that believes the Bible has the right diagnosis for what's going on. And for us not to tell that diagnosis is really theological malpractice. For this reason, multicultural Christianity can't really preach the gospel because it doesn't present an condition. Then finally, I would say this. The... Um, Pastor of the church sponsoring the, the Christian school that I attended years ago wrote something that I will never forget. Of all the things he said, this to me at least was most memorable. He said this, and I hope you will not forget it. You cannot preserve a position without crusading for it. You cannot preserve a position without crusading if our attitude is, well, I believe the Bible, I believe in the church, I believe what the Bible teaches about sexual morality, I'm pro-life, um, I believe in the power of prayer, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe in the distinctiveness of the family and good family order, I believe Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. I believe Christ is the missionary atonement. All of those things. But, but I really don't have to say anything about it or them. I'm going to keep this to myself. This is a private matter. If I say that's our attitude, I'm going to suggest to you that we, or particularly our descendants, will lose the faith. We crusade for what we love and believe in. I'll take you husbands here. Someone, another man were to come and insult your wife or make some sort of sexual advances. Would you just say, who am I? Just keep on the road, kind of ticked off. I'm just gonna keep that for myself. No, you wouldn't, if you're any kind of man at all, you'd punch him right in your chops. you know why? Because you crusade for what you love and believe in. And you love and believe in your wife and in your marriage. And you want to preserve it. I would say the same thing is true of and even more than a marriage which is sacred. Even a greater sense. The Christian faith. In fact, in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, you might be able to read them, write that down, and read it later. 
We read there that the generation that lived with Moses and with Joshua, and they saw the plagues, and they saw the exodus, and those after them saw the miracles in the wilderness, and those that entered Canaan, the promised land. They, any of them at least, though imperfect, basically followed the Lord. But remember what the text says, there rose a generation that didn't know. They hadn't seen the miracles. They didn't know. Apparently, in my view, the parents hadn't communicated to them in a very powerful way. They hadn't been crusaders for the faith. And standing for it, declaring for it boldly. The faith apparently wasn't deep in their hearts. They didn't crusade for it. The first two generations were crusaders, but the following were not. I've just described to you, by the way, how the faith is lost over generations. I've just described that. In conclusion, Gilbert Chesterton, noted Christian author, poet, critic, Brit from last century, wrote this. I was arrested by this quote. Listen to this. He wrote so many powerful things. He said, Unless a man becomes the enemy of evil, he will not even become its slave, but rather its champion. God himself will not help us to ignore you, but only to defy and defeat it. So if our attitude is, well, evil can go exist around me, and it's okay, I'm not going to say anything about it, I'm just going to kind of take it as a matter of fact, and just try to sort of avoid it a little bit. And if we don't hate it, and defy it, and try to destroy it, Eventually, we'll come to like it. He's saying, not only will we neutral about it, we'll just kind of start liking it. So I would ask you this morning, will you be a crusader? Will you defy and defeat evil by the grace of God? If you expect the faith to survive, and those around you. If we expect for living church in 50 years to be around, perhaps not in this building, but perhaps so, and these ones that were in the school Friday night, ones yet to be born, they'll have to see the parents crusade for the faith, the church leaders crusade for the faith. Your pastor is humanly speaking here today because he had parents who crusaded for the faith and believed strongly in the faith. I am here today, humanly speaking, because I had parents who crusaded for the faith. You cannot preserve a position without crusading for it. I'd like to close on this note. Jesus is a great crusader, and his crusade is destined to win. We might fall aside. We might decide to go over and sit on the sideline and go AWOL, but the crusade itself will win. We're on the winning side. The only question for you and me is, are we going to participate as he has called us to in being a crusader? Let us pray.
Father, these are very weighty truths. And I'm not sufficient to speak them because I fail in so many ways. And no doubt many of those less listening do. So we confess our sin to you in being timid and cowardly and faithless, lazy, and not being crusaders for you. Forgive us often for wanting to sit out the battle or going a wall. Lord, we will fail and we will sin, but your Son and his blood gave us a means of coming back to you. So help us to confess our sins and get back in the battle. God bless this church. Thank you for all of those who are so faithful in it. Pastor Shea and his dear family and the other elders and those that have preceded them that are here faithfully sowing into these younger people. Oh God, I pray that you will continue to raise up a generation that will lead this church 50, 100, 150, 200 years from now. And Lord, we look forward to the day when the promise will be fulfilled that your knowledge will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Lord, I may not live, some of us may not live to see that fullness, but we know it's coming. And we know that we're a part of it. Lord, help us to be very faithful. Our job is crusaders. We pray, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the great crusader. In his name alone we pray. Amen.